You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. The debt ceiling was and remains topic A in Washington this week. That's why we've called in Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter for the Washington Post. Jeff, welcome back to First Look. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Wait, so you're just downstairs. You could have come up. We could have sat next to each other if we had a dual camera setup. So yeah, we listen, can pretend been... like we're talking across miles, you know. It's right. <laughs> so there have been lots of seemingly optimistic words coming from the Speaker of the House and from the President in the last few days. So where do things stand right now in the negotiations uh, over the budget and the raising of the debt ceiling? So yes, you're right. All the signals seem quite positive right now. We see an agreement shaping up that includes the elements that have been on the table for days now, which include major permitting reform, some limits on federal spending moving forward for maybe the next two years, the lifting of the federal debt ceiling, um, the rescission of some unused COVID money, and the sort of latest entrant into the negotiations, some kind of work requirements, new um, restrictions on federal aid that make it more difficult for people um, to receive the aid unless they are working or seeking work. Um, I don't take this to the bank, but I kind of expect one major blow up in negotiations, having watched a few of these things on Capitol Hill um, in my short time covering um, Congress, where to get to a deal, both sides need to really show that they fought really hard. And I think that might mean we are in for one more round of everyone being like, the deal fell apart, the sky is falling, there's nothing that's gonna come together before they come together at the last minute and, and actually make a deal. That's an actual, a, a, a great point um, that you're putting out there because I immediately wrote down work requirements because from, from the left, there's a lot of upset with the president over his um, speaking positively about work requirements. Is there a way for the for the administration to negotiate a very narrow work requirement, something that would pass muster with the with the Progressive Caucus in particular, but also with Speaker McCarthy? I think that's a, that's a great question. I'm trying to ask sources that myself right now because this seems to be like the main sticking point. Can you give McCarthy something sort of pro forma on work requirements that doesn't not only rile up the left but actually hurt a lot of people, um, but that he can still say he secured work requirements from his caucus? Um, there are some very nascent conversations. I can't say that you know this is just sort of speculation at this point, but there's talk of. You know, maybe they tighten the age eligibility a little bit. Maybe they um, make it um, so the states have a little bit more money to go after fraud. Maybe that could amount to sort of tightening work requirements. I do think it's worth as a matter of substance, kind of stepping back, though, and, and thinking about how in 2021, Biden approved the um, extent, expanded child tax credit. And what that was essentially was this anti-poverty um, mechanism that really removed work requirements from um, child benefits and, and expanded them so people who weren't working could get um, thousands of dollars over the course of a year to raise children even if they weren't working. And so to a lot of people that was sort of this high watermark of of the um, sort of this, the pendulum swinging against Clintonian work requirements and against 
sort of punitive measures on poor people in terms of um, federal assistance. And now, just two short years later, that program is dead. And we are looking at Biden not only um, not expanding federal work, federal welfare, um, but actually going in the opposite direction and, and tightening work requirements, which is really kind of stunning, um, given where we seem to be mm. just, you know, the beginning of his administration. Right. And the earned income tax credit was credited with cutting par- child poverty in half in the short time that it was a- around. One more question on this before we then talk about the what could potentially blow things up on the right. From your reporting, is it likely that the president is, you know, talking favorably about work requirements as just a rhetorical uh, flourish, but behind the scenes, um, not so much? You know, and that's another really good question. I think there's kind of um, a desire among some, I should say, to maybe make the president's remarks something that they weren't. I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, this is Joe Biden. He was a centrist member of the Senate for 30 years and and is seems quite proud of his vote for Clinton welfare reform in the 90s. And I think a lot of Democrats who like Biden but disagree with that are kind of sifting through his words in an attempt to um, dis- sort of disconnect the policy they dislike from the man. And maybe there's more to that than I think, but just taking that face value, it seems like he really thinks that this is a good idea. Mm. So uh, fr- from the from the right, there's news that the Freedom Caucus has sent a letter basically saying to, to the speaker, stop negotiating with President Biden, or you know, we're not gonna give, give you the votes. How serious of a threat is that to the negotiations? I, you know, I think it's possible that that leads to sort of like a, a very dramatic, sort of McCarthy storms out of the room and is like, I can't do this, but I don't think it's that serious because they've never been relying on these guys to pass the bill anyway, right? Like they, have always understood that some democratic votes will be necessary to get this over the finish line. And so the far right being like, we're not going to touch this thing is, is not really a threat to McCarthy. I mean, I think the, the, the real threat here is that McCarthy's speakership could be imperiled by um, the demands of the right. And so that's kind of the second order effect, but, but nobody really thinks that what the house freedom caucus is saying will prevent the debt ceiling from being raised in this specific form, at least not not from what I've seen. Uh-huh. Uh, let's talk about two, two things real fast that um, are lurking in the background as these negotiations happen at opposite ends of, of Pennsylvania Avenue. One is the discharge petition that uh, Democrats uh, opened up for signatures earlier this week, and they almost had, well, you tell me if all of the Repub- uh, if all of the Democrats have signed the discharge petition, and what's the possibility that Republicans could sign on to it? Um, so I'm, my understanding is there's about 210 Democrats, which I think is almost all of them who have signed on to this petition. And the um, hope from from you know the administration and others is maybe you know as we get to the 11th hour and sort of these moderate. Republicans who are maybe more attentive to the business interests in their community than the sort of libertarian um, anti-establishment Freedom Caucus types, that maybe they'll join with the full Democratic Party and push it over the finish line. Now, I'm not an expert in congressional legislative mechanics, but my understanding is that 
they're almost too late already that this effort because of the the number of days in the legislative calendar it takes would would be so far beyond the actual x date that it, it almost is viewed as as sort of ineffectual right now maybe mccarthy wants to kind of like give a wink and a nod and say to his far right or his right hey you know maybe he he sort of allows that to proceed in a way that he's choosing to but that he will maintain plausible deniability where he can point to this mechanism and say my hands were tied the this discharge petition is coming to the floor and i, I tried to stop it but i couldn't and sort of quietly lets it pass and then kind of has to pretend that he had no choice to the right but absent of that mccarthy can my understanding basically stop this from from effectively solving the solution so maybe as a out if mccarthy wants it but not as a way to override mccarthy and get a deal in his absence interesting and then and then the last one real fast is the 14th amendment if i remember correctly um uh, senate democrats are maneuvering to make this a sort of a in case of emergency break glass option I know Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe made the case for it in an, in an op-ed in the New York Times, but how seriously is the 14th Amendment option being considered um, by the White House? Yeah, without boring you or the audience too much with like <laughs> the legislative mechanics of, um, of treasury auctions, um, the reason the White House I've reported is skeptical of the 14th Amendment, because I get emails and comments and everyone's like, just do the 14th Amendment and walk away. But it's more challenging than that, more complicated than that. Um, because the way this works, right, is the, the some experts and some Democrats are saying, be ready to use the 14th Amendment to say that the, the Treasury can just continue to issue debt, even if the debt ceiling is breached, basically to say Congress has passed two incompatible laws. And we're going to we're going to um, you know, cite the precedence of the 14th Amendment, which says that the U.S. should obligate, uh, should honor its debt obligations. Now, if we reach that point, then what would happen in this scenario is Treasury would have to go forward with an auction of debt, right, to borrow more money. And so they go to the market and say, we're selling IOUs, you give us money and we'll, we'll issue you debt. And that process is sort of what the whole debt ceiling fight is about. Now, if, if Congress doesn't approve the debt ceiling legally and and they have to do this unilaterally as some people want. The fear among administration officials is that the courts and Republicans will challenge that debt issuance as illegal. And so what that could mean is that um, the price of the bond sale, right? I, I know this is kind of boring and abstract, but the price I'm, of- I love this. <laughs> I, I, I hope you're with me because it took me like months to understand this. So the, the price of the bond sale, right? When the treasury tries to sell these IOUs, that could still spike because investors who are buying those bonds are saying, hey, this is, we don't know if we're going to get paid back because Republicans and half the political system might invalidate it, might say it's illegal. And so they will price that, that uncertainty in and demand a premium, which could lead interest rates to rise and for borrowing costs to soar and for some of the major um, downsides in the financial system that the whole point of this debate is intended to ignore could still happen even if they go down the 14th amendment route so i right. i'm not saying it can't happen and i think if we were in a scenario where not, nothing was on the table from congress the administration would seriously consider it but it has downside risks and everyone's just like just do it might be you know from the perspective of the administration kind of underestimating those risks
Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we are way out of time, but as you were explaining all of that, it reminded me of a story that you, um, uh, that you have, I don't know if it's in the paper today, but it is online, about how Treasury Secretary Yellen last weekend with her big meeting with her, her finance counterparts from around the world, folks pulling her aside privately, expressing grave concern about what's happening here in the United States over the debt ceiling. So Jeff Stein, <clears throat> excuse me, get back to work and find out what the <laughs> heck is happening. White House, That's economics, why I'm reporter. <laughs> Thank White House you. economics reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Thanks, Have a good weekend. <clears throat> We're gonna keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Eugene Robinson and Washington Post columnist George Will. Gene and George, welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with you. Great to be here, Jonathan. Okay, so uh, you know we just heard what, uh, Jeff's reporting on on all of this on on the debt ceiling. Uh, I, I would like to know. You, what do you think about what's going on, given what Jeff has told us, plus perhaps your own reporting? And tell us where you think negotiations stand right now. Are we hurtling to default, or has the the slide been slowed by some of the, the, the narrowing of the negotiators in the room and some of the glimmer of happy talk from the speaker and the president? You go first, George. Well, what's going on is perfectly normal. The debt ceiling has been raised 14 times since 2008. In 11 of the 14, there have been conditions attached to it. So this is this is more usual than unusual. Something that I don't understand, and maybe Jane can enlighten me on this, and that is the sense of crisis that surrounds this. In April, federal revenues were $639 billion. In April, the cost of servicing the debt was $62 billion. In other words, revenues were 10 times the size of the cost of servicing the debt, which means that if our highest priority is to avoid a default, then prioritize. That is, take some of the other revenue, deprive other wings of the government of that for a while, and go on. The idea that we have this hard default date coming up is a fiction designed to stimulate negotiations and to design to, to uh, apply pressure. It just does not uh, comport with the facts about re federal revenues. Gene, a fiction? Well, look, Washington runs on fiction, as George <laughs> well knows, and runs on manufactured crisis, uh, as George also well knows. And so, yeah, this is um, George's figures, I'm sure, are absolutely right. And so, oh, yes, we could service the debt at, by making cuts or, or holding money back uh, elsewhere uh, that the government otherwise would spend. But nobody wants to do that. Nobody really intends to do that because the government, um, you know, needs to spend that money. And people, the people who are going to get that money need that money. It's, it's it, so... I don't, that's not an option. Um, it, you're right that, that the, the sky does not fall uh, necessarily on June 1st, if that is indeed the date, uh, as you know, 
George would attest, Treasury always finds a way to wriggle and maneuver and say that, well, actually, that wasn't the date. Actually, the date is a couple of months from now or whatever. Um, uh, but, um, you know, in general, at some point, the debt ceiling has to be raised. I think the debt ceiling is stupid. Um, the, the idea <laughs> that we have to continue continually vote to to honor our the commitments we've already made i think is ridiculous but um uh, we don't get rid of it uh democrats when they had control although they didn't have 60 votes in the senate but they didn't get rid of the debt ceiling mm -hmm. and, or try to get rid of the debt ceiling and republicans won't and so we'll just keep going through this um uh okay so clearly given by both of your responses I'm the only alarmist here on the screen. Um, but George, do you do you agree that, I mean, shouldn't this whole, let's get rid of the drama by getting rid of the debt ceiling. Why do we have it? We're the only industrialized country that has it. Well, we're also the most prosperous industrialized country. So uh, I'm not saying there's a correlation there, but it's certainly not standing between us and prosperity. The reason to have it is it's an action forcing device. The president says, Mr. Biden says these days, look, I'll be glad to negotiate about the unsustainable trajectory of our fiscal affairs in this country after the Republicans give me the clean uh, debt ceiling increase. That is, after they get rid of the only leverage that would continue to force me to take seriously the problem of our unsustainable trajectory. I think it's healthy periodically to force people to engage in politics. That's all that's going on here. The Democrats, what progressives are, are doing what they always do. They want unconstrained presidential power. They want unconstrained spending. And they want, this is something that's in the bill, that they, they, they oppose what the House has passed that would put a, involve Congress more deeply in the major regulations coming out of the bureaucracy. What's the, this is, these are good political arguments. Let's have them now. And they are forced by what you want to get rid of, which is well, the debt ceiling. Wait a minute, George. Well, but, but what does permitting reform have, you know, and, and regulation? That has nothing to do really with the debt ceiling. And the, the, the idea that Republicans are shocked, shocked that there's spending going on here <laughs> after, after, you know, you, you, you plot out the Republican and Democratic presidencies and, and you see which ones in which the uh, our accumulated debt has spiked uh, and which ones in which that increased rate of increase has moderated it's the Republicans um, who who send the our debt skyrocketing uh, and so why uh, we're on an unsustainable course well, yeah, and it didn't bother you at all in the slightest when there was Republican in the White House. I'm going to double dutch my way in yeah. here. Respond. I mean, George, it bothered man. you, George, but it didn't bother the Republican Party. <laughs> when when uh, now Majority Leader Schumer attached to, insisted on attaching an immigration measure to one of the prior increases in the debt ceiling. Yeah. What was the matter with that? I, I, I don't object to it, and and but let's not pretend we're now shocked that people attach non <laughs> measures not directly related to the debt ceiling, to a debt ceiling bit of legislation. No, we, we, 
I, point well taken. Point well taken. Okay. That was stupid, too. <laughs> <laughs> George, I want to come back to something you said in your previous answer, which is about the debt ceiling fight being a forcing mechanism. And I, I take issue with it only because the president put out his budget for FY24 on March 9th of this year. The House Republican majority has yet to put out its own budget for FY24. Shouldn't the, the appropriations process, the budget process, the negotiations over FY2024 be the forcing mechanism for these conversations about spending caps and cuts and reining in, in spending that is now consuming the, what should be a simple conversation about raising the debt ceiling to ensure the full faith and credit of the United States. You're quite right that the budget law, which is a law and which is every year violated, should be the forcing mechanism. <laughs> but it's, but the, the law is not even considered a recommendation. It's considered a, <laughs> a, a, a kind of aspiration. We haven't had the a regular order in the budget, that is a budget passed with all 12 appropriations bills handled separately rather than in a giant end of session omnibus bill for I think 21 years, 21 years. Now, you, you can't have a mechanism, no one takes it seriously and they do not take the law, I emphasize, this is a law that is regularly ignored by the scoff laws that, that comprise 535 members of Congress. Well, okay then, let's move on to abortion, shall we? Shall we? Um, Gene, this week, the Republican-led state legislature in North Carolina overrode the Democratic governor's veto to ban abortions after 12 weeks. And there's a Meredith College poll of North Carolina voters in February that noted, quote, over half of our respondents wanted to keep North Carolina's current law about abortion access 20 weeks or expand it. So if the previous 20-week ban had majority support, why did the legislature knock it down to 12? Why did they take this action? Well, presumably a lot of those members actually um, believe that that was the right thing to do. That was the moral thing to do. Um, I, I disagree with them. I think it's, the, it's certainly the wrong thing to do. Um, but I was a supporter of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I believe in uh, women's uh, re reproductive rights, and um, so I. And I think this is bad politically for Republicans in North Carolina and elsewhere where it's being done. But um, uh, but you know, presumably, at least some of those lawmakers, um, uh, you know, believe they're doing the right thing. I, I, I think mm. they're wrong. George, meanwhile, in Florida, Florida Governor DeSantis basically said, hold my beer, and signed a law banning abortions after six weeks. How can this be of any help to Republicans when we've seen um, the reaction um, over abortion issues since the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, particularly I'm thinking of Kansas, Ruby Red, Kansas, where when the voters had an opportunity to have their say over abortion rights, they, they said, uh, we want them. Yes, when, when Mr. DeSantis won such a landslide in 2022 that he pulled in a supermajority of Republicans in the state legislature, 
a bomb started to tick and it's now exploded. It's going to be very difficult for Mr. DeSantis to be elected president of the United States if he does not find some way to wriggle out from under his signature on that bill on on uh, six weeks. Uh, there's something very puzzling going on here. Mr. Yunkin, governor, Republican governor of Virginia, says, I am pro-life and, and I can live with 15-week ban. Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, Republican governor, says, I'm pro-choice and I can live with 15 weeks. The country can live with 15 weeks. And sooner or later, I think we're going to going to coalesce around this understanding. 15 weeks allows for 93% of all the abortions that occur in the United States. And, and that is a sort of temperate position. There's ex, there are extremists on both sides. Six weeks is an extreme position because many women do not at that point know they're pregnant. At least as extreme are those who say that abortion should be legal on demand for any reason up to 10 minutes before birth. Now, the country is much more temperate on that, and I suggest 15 weeks is where we're going to wind up. Um, I don't know if anybody's, <clears throat> I've, I haven't heard about that left extreme that you're talking about, but you did raise a, a name that, um, uh, George, that I found interesting, Governor Youngkin. Um, who I seem to recall during the Milken conference said, no, I'm not thinking of running for president. Now, do you think, um, because of what you said about Governor DeSantis and what he did um, in Florida with the six-week abortion ban, that maybe this is why there seem to be rumblings that he might jump into the race for president? Well, it's hard to jump in because it takes a lot of preparation and cultivating the ground to do that. But right. General Sherman told us how to be Sherman-esque. If nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. <laughs> Mr. Youngkin has left the door open just the tiniest crack by saying, I'm not going to run this year. Well, good. We're not having a presidential election this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no question that if Mr. DeSantis continues to have the rough slutting that he has had over the last few weeks, a number of people are going to rethink, and Youngkin might be one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Gene, you're from South Carolina. It's expected on Monday mm -hmm. that uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott is going to officially announce his bid for the White House. What what lane do you think he will take, he will occupy in the race for the Republican <laughs> nomination? I, th I think it will be the exit lane, actually. <laughs> I don't see him going very far. Um, look, he, the lane I think he wants to fill is kind of the happy warrior, a, a, a less sort of um, bitter and confrontational, um, uh, in-your-face approach to uh, very conservative policies than, say, Ron DeSantis takes. Uh, he's betting that maybe that's something that Republican primary voters are looking for. Um, I think, I don't think they were necessarily looking for a Trump without the baggage like DeSantis wants to be, or for a, a happy warrior Trump like Scott wants to be. I think they may, might be looking for Trump, uh, and that's his problem. And George, less than a minute left. What do you think? About Mr. Scott? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I think uh, 
if people are are want Trump, they're going to take Trump, and that's DeSantis's problem. Uh, Chris Christie has said DeSantis is like new Coke. People who are supposed to drink <laughs> like the old Coke, and they're going to go back to the old Coke. Uh, I think Mr. Scott or Youngkin or Sununu or lots of people out there can say, I want to go in an entirely different direction. Someone's going to come along and say what the president, what the governor of Tennessee, Mr. Lee, has said. I'm a conservative. I'm just not angry about it. And that's going to find, I think, a real resonance in the country. That's a that that's a good line. George Will, Eugene Robinson, as <laughs> always, we got to go. We've run out of time. But thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.